Technology is making more and more possible. The pace of change may make it seem that there is little we can learn from the past to understand the future. My name is Mike Von Masso, and this is the Food Focus Podcast. My guest this episode would argue that there is much to learn from the past to better understand the future. Will Wright is an anim- animal historian at Augustana University. We talk about how our understanding and introduction of gene editing can be informed by the history of our relationship with domesticated animals. I wouldn't have thought that there would be much interesting insight relevant to contemporary issues, but like me, I expect you will find there really is. This won't be the last historian on this podcast. Well, Will, uh, welcome. Uh, Good to see you again. It's been a while, and thank you for taking the time to have this discussion. Great to join you. So, Will, I have to be honest that when I started a podcast, I was not 100% sure that I would ever have a historian on to talk about food, but having worked with you and, and seen some of your work and seen presentations from you, I think there's some real value. But why should we look at history to learn about food? Well, I think, you know, one of the, the points that uh, why looking to the past matters is, is sort of a reminder that the food that we produce, process, consume uh, doesn't happen in a social bubble, that it's sort of shaped by uh, politics, economics, cultural values, and that those things change over time. And so a historian is really interested in looking at continuity and change over time. And so um, just as an example, Nick Colother has this book called The Hungry World, and he looks how Cold War geopolitics shape food systems. So whether it's the Mexican agricultural program and Norman Borlaug working on hybrid varieties of wheat or the International uh, Rice Research Institute in the Philippines, um, you know, they're deploying these these crops uh, for in some ways, ideological reasons to provide kind of a, an ideological barrier to sort of um, uh, red China during the 1950s and 60s. And so they're exporting into places like India, Pakistan, Vietnam. And it, one of the famous quotes of that book that I, I, I think always sticks with me is uh, a staffer in the Lyndon B. Johnson administration says, rice is as valuable as bullets. And sort of hammers home this point that, you know, food, it can be ideological. And so revisiting how value systems are shaping food in the past, I think, helps us to understand kind of the current value systems and how they shape food in the present and and possibly the future as well. Yeah. And and, and I wouldn't, frankly, have thought that sort of one of the motivations of the green revolution and and sort of the g- dramatic growth in in productivity in agriculture was sort of to to put up a bull, bulwark against the spread of communism but that might have been uh, one of the reasons well as you suggest is one of the reasons that green revolution happened and uh, may have affected sort of investments in research and development and investments in in plant breeding that might not otherwise have happened to that degree in the absence of that geopolitical environment. Yeah. That is, so it's interesting. So what sorts of things do we look for in the past to help us understand the future? Well, um, 
you know, I'm an animal historian, and so I'm really interested in humans' relationships to animals and how those change over time. And so uh, one of the things that uh, I do in my research is um, looking at specific traits in animals and how those traits, whether it be you know, rates of growth or horns or muscle power, how those shape uh, animal bodies and then how um, different human societies valued certain things about the animals and how that changes over time. Um, and so that's something that we look at and, it, and usually employ a very human-centered archive. So we're looking at you know state documents or journals or things of that nature and saying, well, what can, what can we know about this pig or this cow from this very sort of human-centered perspective? And how does that reveal kind of things that people thought about and um, tried to change about that animal? Okay. So let, let's maybe bring this back to a, a, a more specific or focused perspective. And that, and that might help people understand a little bit what we're talking about. You've recently done some work as a part of a project that we're both working on, uh, mm -hmm. on uh, looking at the past and acceptance of genetic technologies in the past, really to try and gain some insight looking forward uh, relative to how we might uh, how the how the acceptance of gene, gene editing technology might be accepted. What sort mm -hmm. of things do you look for, uh, sort of in the past, to help us to help us do that? Yeah. So what we did is we reviewed um, systematically about 120 works in animal history, and we try to synthesize this body of knowledge and say, well, what are the value systems that are driving uh, uh, animals that we would consume as food? Um, and what we found is that, uh, sort of not surprisingly, is that those value systems change over time. So in the agro-pastoral period, which we defined as sort of earliest times to about 1700, that these value systems that were shaping the animal were quite broad. So, for example, in uh, Ottoman Egypt, for example, in the 14 and 1500s, um, they used water buffaloes for all sorts of purposes, not just sustenance, right? So it was dredging irrigation canals or for ceremonial purposes. And so because there are multiple pressures on that animal, it's not just for food that they're doing it. It has a broad suite of traits that are preserved in that animal. If we talk about a shift in about 1700, we start to see uh, a much more singular focus on the values that are driving uh, animal traits, particularly uh, about sort of production. So if we think about this is a time where, you know, the world is starting to industrialize and factory production is becoming more commonplace. And so just as products are start starting to become more standardized, we're also seeing animal bodies become more standardized. This is where you get actual what we'd call improved breeds like Herefords, like Holsteins. And we see sort of a shift there. And Robert Bakewell, who's an English tenant farmer, um, really introduced a system of breed improvement through using inbreeding. Um, and then sort of in the post-World War II or Second World War, War period, 1945 to the present, we see a sort of shift again where 
Um, we see states very invested in shaping animals for food security, right? If we think about this sort of global warfare, sort of really shaking up food systems and a lot of rationing going on, so they're really concerned. And that, that sort of doesn't matter across the ideological spectrum. But then we also see citizens who are concerned about things like, you know, animal welfare. Um, uh, Ruth Harrison in 1964 publishes Animal Machines, um, trying to think about what is the care and conditions under which things like chickens or cows are, are raised under. And so we also see societal concerns. And so it's in some ways we kind of go for a full circle in that value systems were quite broad in this early period. They narrowed around production and then have kind of broadened again. Um, and so this is, this is one of the things that we um, looked at by sort of tracking animal traits and value systems over time. It's interesting because I think if you look, uh, as you said, in the early days, uh, while there were a broader set of criteria, that criteria were all focused around productivity. We just, we just had a diversified set of applications, if you will. Yeah. Then we yeah. said, okay, we're going to, we're going to focus. We're going to have Holsteins for milk, Herefords for, for beef. And, and, and then the focus became producing as much milk or as much beef as we could out of those animals. So we're now broadening the criteria that we're looking at. But mm -hmm. we're moving away from productivity criteria to uh, to a set of criteria that might create some tension in some of these breed selection, you know, welfare versus productivity, um, and, and you know, welfare being being the big one, but also the healthfulness potentially of those products. Uh, yeah, is part of what's driving that sort of an increase and incomes and productivity and a move away so that we have, frankly, the luxury to think about other things than just productivity? Or, or, or what do you think might be driving that? In some ways, I feel like it, it might be, you know, and driven by sort of a consumer base that has more disposable income. But I, I also think part of it has to do with we have less and fewer and fewer people who are actually engaged in sort of agricultural production itself. <laughs> Um, so, you know, you can go back to, you know, the 1920s and 30s as a time where, you know, a majority of society is directly involved in the food system uh, in primary production, right? They're, mm -hmm. they're growing crops, raising animals. And if you sort of change to sort of maybe 1970s, 80s, right? That that is that population is shrinking, and so I think in some ways it's a desire to still be involved in that food system mm -hmm. when when people are not directly involved in ways that they would have been in the past, and so I, that's where I think kind of the having a say in the food system why that matters is because the sort of less and less people are in primary production than they were sort of. 50 years ago. That makes a ton of sense. And it also sort of contextualizes perhaps how we should think about engaging with people who are expressing concerns that understanding those motivations better may help us sort of communicate with them in, in ways that may lead to more productive discussions. Yeah. And in some ways, that's why 
one of the lessons that we drew after this history review was that, you know, any technology that can meet a broader set of values, whether that's production or welfare or sustainability, has a better chance, if you will, to be accepted because it's meeting, a, in some ways, a broader constituency of people. Um, and because less people are involved and more people want a say, I think that that sort of lesson is only embodied if we look back to the past and, and say, you know, what, what values, what ethics are shaping our food system. Okay. That, yeah, that makes a ton of sense. So I'm going to pick some specific examples out of the paper, and I will post a link to the paper when we post the podcast for those that want to go take a look. And one of the gene editing characteristics that you discuss in the paper and was was part of our product, uh, our project, was the ability to uh, select cattle or enhance cattle, uh, the slick gene, uh, for heat tolerance. And we have made efforts to improve heat tolerance in cattle in the past that I hadn't thought about. Yeah, so... In some ways, I look to the history of acclimatizing cattle to new environments. So if you think about a lot of the improved breeds, right? Take Hereford, for example. Hereford, the name itself comes from the place that that breed was developed, which was Herefordshire, England, right? And so this is a temperate adapted breed. And so in the 1700s, sort of in 1800s and 1900s, you have the expansion of a lot of these temperate adaptive breeds and spreading out all over the globe, you know, from the Canadian prairies in, you know, Alberta and Saskatchewan to the Rio de la Plata region of Argentina. And there a lot of breeders are having questions of like, how will this temperate adapted breed function in a tropical or semi-tropical environment in the case of Uh, of South America. Um, And in some ways that's provides sort of the pushback of like, will this breed be hardy enough to to survive warmer places? And in many ways, their answer is as a purebred animal, it's not going to. And so they, they uh, import um, Zebu uh, uh, genetics from India uh, because it's known for its uh, short hair coat and similar to the slick yeah. gene. And so it's these hybrid animals that are zebu Hereford crosses that become sort of the standard bearer. And so one of the, again, one of the lessons, I guess, is that um, cl- acclimatizing cattle was in some ways bound up in questions of empire, because mm-hmm. this, these were often French uh, or British or... Uh, um, American companies that were exporting these cattle. And, and um, so their motivation was not just to, you know, introduce a new species, but also to get a colonial stakehold in these places. Um, and so we need, in some ways, need to think about, you know, the cultural context in which these genetic technologies operate. So the the barriers that might be exist in a place like Canada are, might be different from a place like Brazil, yeah. where it has this history of um, thinking about cattle in this sort of imperial context. Um, and so that, that's again, animals uh, don't happen in a bubble, and yeah. so we need to be thinking about these broader societal forces that are 
shaping the, the food system in that case. And specifically to heat tolerance, I think, you know, you talked about expanding it sort of, uh, you could argue perhaps food security in some of these countries, the introduction of, uh, of, of proteins, but also then the dependence on, uh, on sort of imported technologies. Yeah. You know, we're, we're, we're talking about the slick genes specifically in the context of building resilience to climate change. Yeah. Uh, but I think there are some lessons from the past that, 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 that we might have some unintended effects. In fact, broadening the area where we can produce cattle and perhaps leading to things like, uh, like clearing, uh, of rainforest and other things where we're expanding. Is, is that a fair? Yeah. So, so yeah, that's a fair assessment. You know, not only thinking about, okay, are we adapting these cattle to, uh, perform just as well or better in in um, wet more weather extremes, but also thinking about what's the geographic footprint of this animal, and are we enhancing certain traits so that they can survive in a broader range of conditions that would you know lead to things like um, deforestation in the Amazon. And so these are by revisiting this history, these are things that kind of are on the forefront of our attention when we think about. The, the policies, the ethics around these technologies. Um, you know, a good example that, that I think really highlights how food security became a, a, a big value, not only in the post-war era, but I, I would say still today, is the collaboration between Canada and Cuba when it came to dairy production. Um, so in the after the 1959 revolution with Fidel Castro, he really wanted to enhance the domestic milk supply so that each Cuban child could have one liter of nationally produced milk and end a reliance on U.S. imports for that milk. And so Cuba actually turned, so we had a, a communist country turning to Canada to import Holsteins and to have uh, Cuban veterinarians that would train in Canada so that they could ar- open up artificial uh, insemination centers so that they could transform their l- largely zebu herds into zebu Holstein hybrids that then would then have more milk production. And by, by the 1980s, Cuba is the sixth largest uh, dairy producer in all of Latin America, largely because of these. And so it, it, it's just a great example of how you know, kind of cross ideologies and political spectrums, you have two countries collaborating on kind of shared goals of trying to um, enhance uh, food security in both of those countries. And it may, looking back, been one of the drivers of, of the growth in the Canadian dairy genetics industry, right? Was, was... Yeah. Yeah. A, a famous example is uh, Hanover Hill Starbuck, who uh, was a famous stud bull um, uh, owned by uh, CAIQ um, yeah. out of Quebec. And um, yeah, his bull semen was basically exported, you know, I think it's something like 20,000 straws to 46 different countries across the world. Um, and so if we... Ch- look at the value of food security, we can see why that, that uh, genetic stock would have such um, value, you know, mm-hmm. across the world in some ways and, and explain why Holsteins are 
everywhere, right? You yeah. can't go in anywhere, any continent, uh, and not see a Holstein. Um, and yeah. so you have to turn to history to understand that. Another another topic you cover in the paper is is dehorning and welfare, uh, you know, and and the evolution of that process. Uh, what what do you think was interesting at looking at the past uh, of of the of the process and practice of dehorning? So when we revisit the past, um, we see that you know in the 1600s, 1700s, 1800s that horns really had value, and it was because of how they were raised under open range ranching conditions because they provided a means of predator defense. So whether it was wolves or jaguars, right, with in the absence of human handlers, you wanted an animal who had horns. Otherwise, that animal could be uh, a predator's uh, snack. And so it's not until we see the rise of uh, railroads and these large slaughterhouses where animals are much more in concentrated areas, whether it's at a railhead or at a slaughterhouse, that we see kind of the, this issue of animals goring each other as they're in close proximity to one another actually being an issue. And so this is the very moment when the practice of dehorning actually occurs, uh, first in in Ireland in the 1870s. And then we see this practice sort of adopted in other countries, including the United States and Canada in the 1880s. And this is so interesting in that uh, this is where uh, disbudding enters the picture. Yep. Because there are people within the Royal Society Against the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals who are lobbying governments and saying this dehorning that we're doing to prevent goring is actually causing unnecessary pain to the animal. Yep. And so they uh, outlaw the practice. And there's an, actually a farmer in Ontario who's arrested for <laughs> uh, dehorning his, his cattle in 1892. And so this commission is formed in 1893, uh, the, the Ontario government commissions, and they recommend the practice of disbudding during calfhood because they say it, uh, the wounds heal faster, uh, it causes, it's a less invasive process. Um, and so this is where sort of disbudding gets first introduced um, as a practice. And so we see that in some ways these same arguments happening for gene editing. Yep. That that one of the reasons why, from a welfare perspective, um, we can eliminate pain altogether if we put, produce a genetically hornless animal. Yep. And, and so um, in some ways that, that debate originates from the 1890s, right? And we're still having it. New technology, but same debate. And, but my point of, about talking about horns in in the 1600s and 1700s and 1800s is that, you know, there could be a time where horns have value again, right? There is uh, more and more pressure on food systems to raise animals extensively rather yep. than intensively. And that could produce a market force where you have more open range conditions. And, and in that case, right, with, you know, wolves in Canada, for example, yeah. right, that there may be a time where, where horns have value once more. And so we, we should also not limit ourselves in saying that 
if we want to eliminate horns, right, um, it could have these these sort of broader consequences for for how this food system develops. Yeah, it's interesting to me because I think we often get stuck in the now when we're making some of these decisions in sort of the contemporary environment. And and I hadn't, you know, I understand why dehorning or disbudding or or gene editing to to raise hornless cattle makes sense in the current environment, but I, I hadn't thought about it in the context of why why that became valid, right? You know, we feed lots, dairy animals in barns and thinking mm-hmm. about moving forward. Well, with some of the pressure to perhaps go, as you say, more extensively may change that. And perhaps thinking in anticipation of what some of those things might be, might be one of the most important lessons we can learn from history is the motivation for some of these, uh, for some of these changes that, w- that we don't think about if we're focused on the here and now. Yeah, yeah. In some ways, the 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 value of history is providing this longitudinal perspective, right? Yeah. And kind of in providing a long longer perspective, we see that in some ways the choices in front of us are much more open than we might think. You know, that there's only these narrow set of circumstances that we need to adopt certain things or go certain directions. Yeah, it makes me think. It it, it maybe it's out of context. It makes me think a little bit about the quote from Henry Ford, who had said, "Well, if we'd asked consumers, they'd have asked for a faster horse uh, instead of a car." And 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 sort of thinking about a broader range of of opportunities and potential eventualities, I think is important. I've kept you about as long as I promised I would. I, I want to give you a chance to to sort of. To, to, to make any points that I, I should have asked you about, but was remiss and didn't. Is there any, I think, any other lessons that you think are worth sort of highlighting here? Well, I mean, I think one thing to end on um, is looking at sort of recent history, right? And looking at transgenic techniques that developed in the 1980s and 90s and how, you know, things like uh, recombinant bovine somatotropin or RBS and in some ways the contestant contestation that happened around that technology uh, was a result of not consulting people right we talked about less and less people being part of the food system but wanting more and more of a say and so to avoid you know some of the pushback I think is bringing in kind of a broader array of voices. And again, showing that this food system has multiple values at play, right? And, and whenever a technology can have more values that it, it meets, the, the more likely it is, whether that be gene editing or something else to be uh, accepted and, and um, adopted. So um, yeah, I, I think the recent history matters too, to why we're trying to revisit the past as well. And and understanding some of that pushback, the fact that, that to a degree we inflicted that technology on the public rather than, rather than engaged that public. And so again, a lesson might be, let's have a more fulsome discussion rather than a, 
a student once said to me, a, a conversation can't be two monologues. And, and, and that's often yeah, where, exactly. where we end up is that level of engagement. I think that that's an excellent point. And I thank you. I thank you for making it. So that was really interesting. And I apologize for not thinking that a historian could create value on a podcast about food. I think it's been, it's been fascinating. I learned something in addition to when we've had previous conversations. So thank you for taking the time. Well, there's a growing amount of food historians and animal historians, so hopefully it's not the last. Okay, good. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Food Focus podcast. We strive to find topics of interest and relevance to people passionate about agriculture and food. If you have any suggestions, please visit us at foodfocusguelph.ca and leave a suggestion. We also have regular blog posts on the website you will find interesting. If you enjoyed the episode, please take a moment to leave a review wherever you get your episodes, the website, Apple, Spotify, or many other platforms. We appreciate your reviews and it helps others find us. Stay tuned for more episodes.